This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 18 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is talking to people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. There's nothing feeding the soul. You know, that interaction that we talk about, that organicness of meeting each other. Yeah, so that's one of the pieces of advice I give to the people that I coach is if you're hosting the meeting, you got to get on early, right? Because sometimes, you know, there's an update to the software or something else and it just throws you off by five minutes. And if you're late to your own party, that's a problem. That's the voice of Kevin Palo, my guest this week. He's a corporate storyteller and a consultant for his company, Deliberate Consulting. I first met Kevin through Lunch Club, an app that's online. What I loved about Kevin's approach was he's very pragmatic and deliberate in how he delivers the message. Even more importantly, through workshops, it helps to drive sales, earn support for your ideas and effectively lead you to influence and persuade others. All he needs you to do is figure out what makes your organization's ideas and offerings different and valuable. In fact, your communication needs to be deliberate. I first started by asking Kevin, what's his company all about? I've got a business that's called Deliberate Consulting. And what I do is I I help my clients be more deliberate in their messaging. And so what I mean by that is use of story, use of the other ingredients of persuasion anytime that they have to communicate a message to an audience. And what I've seen is that most business professionals tend to approach communications like a book report. It's very factual, a lot of information, but it's just not sticky and it doesn't get people to change behaviors. And at the end of the day, if you're in sales and let's face it, all of us are in sales, whether we're selling a product or whether we're selling an idea to our own management team, we're presenting in order to drive decisions. That's a really great analogy because I loved what you said about there that it wasn't sticky. So break that down a little bit for people who don't kind of understand that. What does that really mean in practical terms? In practical terms, what that means is does your audience even remember what you're talking about? And do they remember the key points that you're making? And does it resonate with them? And by resonate, I mean, do they feel it? Is this something they believe in, they're excited about? And go out and spread your message for you. Because I'm dead enthusiastic about that because you just, again, said a really, really great thing is spread the message for you about your message. And that's the key to it, isn't it? Well, think about it in a a sales process point of view. We're trying to convert behaviors, getting someone to convert to your perspective and what the, the value is to them for your idea or your product or your solution. What that means is that by converting them, even if, you know, and I, and I'm getting off on a track here, but, you know, people who, who are resistant to an idea, if you can convert them, they become your, your biggest allies and biggest supporters. And so our job when we're communicating is to convert people into allies. So why do people resist an idea? Is there a range of different reasons? And, and I know it's very kind of hard to pinpoint it sometimes, but you are almost like a a forensic investigator a little bit, aren't you? When you go into a situation where you're going to do a presentation. 
That's a great analogy. And I, I love that. So you're, you're a great storyteller already. I can tell that. So <laughs> it's, yes, I mean, there are reasons people are resistant. And, you know, lots of times it comes down to emotional issues. And so the problem is, is that when we run up against resistance, our instinct is to attack it with facts. And when we attack it with facts, people end up digging in their heels and becoming even more resistant. We have to address the emotion first. And, you know, why are they resistant to a message, any message? Well, I hate to say it, most people are lazy. It's easier to stick with what we know and how we do it already because it's good enough. Sometimes it's because we've put a lot of effort or a lot of thought or a lot of time into doing something and changing is, you know, psychologically is giving up on work you've already done. And, you know, so there's a lot of different things that can be going on. Sometimes it, it's monetary issues, right? They don't have a budget or, or they don't have time or, you know, and, and, you know, think about anyone that you're presenting to. They're busy. I don't know anyone who's not busy and busier than they were five years ago, certainly busier than they were 10 years ago. And if people are busy, they just don't have the bandwidth to sit there and think through everything that comes across their desk or across their screen. That's, uh, again, a great statement. They don't have the bandwidth. And that's, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because you have to kind of literally stop, listen, and then process what's been, been said to you. And for so many of us, especially in sales, we're not good listeners, are we? We're not great at that listening part. So where does listening really kick in? What would you say on the hierarchy scale of sales? We always have to be listening, always. I would say earlier on in the sale, we, you know, and, and when I say sale, I mean decision process, whether it's a sale or whether it's trying to push an idea. Um, early on, we have to listen a lot more. So, you know, our, our friends at Covey will say that world-class discovery leads to world-class advocacy. So early on, we really have to be listening because or else we go in and we try to sell an idea or solution, the audience doesn't need, or we misread it. We hear them say one thing, well, we don't have the money for that. And we immediately jump to the conclusion, well, the, it's, the price is too high, but really it might be budget or it might be change management costs or all the secondary and tertiary costs that are out there. So, you know, by going in and, and listening with the intent of understanding, we can do a much better job of even determining, do we need to take up this person's time? Because if they don't need what we're selling, we're wasting their time. And that's a sin. We shouldn't do that. You know, that's a really great approach as well, because that's the one of kind of planning your presentation, you know, going in and thinking, you know, it'd be great to close down on this person and get a contract and what have you. But actually planning for the switch. In other words, they may not be ready, but let's discover when they might be ready, if ever. So how do you go through your discovery process when you're going to do a presentation to somebody? Well, you know, sometimes you know, in a perfect world, all have talked to the audience or, or a, a representative slice of the audience ahead of time to really understand what their drivers are. Uh, you know, what, what are their concerns? What are they hoping to achieve as it relates to what my idea or what my solution is? Um, Sometimes we just don't have that luxury, right? We go into a meeting and, and you meet, you're expecting to go in and talk to a director of technology and lo and behold, procurement's there. And if we don't know what their personal drivers are, it's okay to make some assumptions. Now, I, I, I know assumptions make an ass out of you and out of me, but at the end of the day, if I'm talking to a CFO, rather than trying to sell them on the technical merits of the solution, like most people will do, I know a CFO is driven by some specific things. In general, CFOs are worried about things like return on shareholder equity. 
uh, return on investment, on budget, on schedule. So if I'm talking to a CFO, I have to tailor the message to what their drivers are. Now, if I can talk to them ahead of time and understand what are their, you know, what are their personal goals? What, you know, what really is driving their decision-making? What are the things that are really concerning them? You know, what, what are the, the, the magic, magic wand solutions, as I call them, that they wish they had when it came to certain aspects of their, of their business? So if I can tie my message to what they care about and tangibly show how I can help them with that, I'm going to be in much better shape, which means fewer meetings, faster meetings, and much higher likelihood to convert. Could you give us an example or the audience an example where you've had a tough situation like that? And how? what was your kind of three-point step of trying to achieve, number one, their commitment to, to listen to you for a start, number two, to actually take on board your idea, and number three, the conversion to either a sale or you know a contract of some sort? One thing you know that 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 we've learned by by we I mean me and some of my colleagues and some of the people that I've worked with over the years is that world class discovery leads to world class advocacy. Well, the trick is there has to be advocacy at the very beginning as well because you have to earn the right to have the discussion. And so you know where a lot of people struggle on the sales side or on the the technical subject matter expert you know given a presentation is that they come in and you know, they'll ask questions like, well, what's keeping you up at night? Well, if you know the person and you've got a relationship with them, you know, you can ask those sorts of questions. But most of the executives I've run into, it just makes them mad because you haven't done your homework. Or why should they take a call with a new person that they don't trust, they don't have a relationship with, and start talking about the things that really worry them in their business? You've got to earn that right to ask that sort of question. And so where, where that comes in is we have to start with some sort of insight. You know, what's our, what perspective do we have about their business or their challenge or their opportunity to get them to see things in a different way that they may see them already? And that's, that's the really tricky thing because if they, you know, if you're talking to an expert and you're coming in, you know, with something that's clearly within their, their, the bounds of their knowledge and you come in and try to educate them, Again, you're either going to antagonize them or you're going to bore them. Neither one is going to help you make the conversion. But if you can come in and give them a different way of looking at the problem, suddenly you're an interesting person to talk to because this is a conversation they haven't had before. Interesting. And that can really open the door to having really robust, engaging, peer-to-peer conversations. So I imagine in the recent times, probably in the last 18 months with the advent of more people using Zoom, what's been the quality of those types of conversations in your experience? What's happened to those peer-to-peer or the C-suite type conversations that people are having? Yeah, so I'm, I'm sighing and puffing my cheeks out right now because what we're seeing is, is over the last 12 to 18 months or so, it's really hard to build new relationships and build trust. And pre-COVID, incumbents win about 80% of the time. In a bidding situation, because it's the devil that the customer already knows. And they've already gone through all the teething pains and everything else to onboard them and build build out workable processes and, and a flow of business. Now, what we're seeing is it's closer to 90 to 95% of the time the incumbent's winning, because it's really hard to build those new relationships. You know, virtually, you're not in the room, you're not shaking hands, you're not reading each other's body language, you're not feeling, you know, feeling the connection. And we're not going out and doing things like having a beer or having dinner and building that relationship. So it's, it's been much, much harder, which means that when we are in a Zoom meeting, we've got to do 
everything possible to make it as impactful as, as we can. So again, I always like to give my audience sort of practical steps. You know, they're in the same situation you've just sort of described there. You know, they've been great salespeople. They've been great consultants. They've been winning maybe 20% of the, you know, the, the people they contact, which is quite a high conversion rate. And now suddenly that's dwindled to less than 5%. What practical steps can they do now? Because they're based wholly around the telephone and Zoom. Where can they start to make a difference in, in your opinion? How would you sort of advise them? Let's kind of break that into two parts. We'll look at that as things we can do in the Zoom meeting itself and then things we can do outside of Zoom. So within Zoom, first up, turn on your camera. It's hard enough reading body language through a camera. If you have it off, they can't see you, you can't see them. And the research is pretty darn clear that when you can see someone's face, you can understand what they're saying faster and with better accuracy. So even if your even if your customer or the person you're you're presenting to doesn't turn on their camera, turn on yours. They've got to be able to see you. The old primitive part of the brain, the, I like to call it the lizard brain. If you don't have your camera on when you could, lizard brain perceives that as you hiding something. Absolutely, yeah. When you're hiding something, that means you're not being truthful. And if you're not being truthful, it's hard for people to build a sense of trust with you. Oh, yeah. So that's one thing that we can do. Uh, we Other things we can do is, you know, it's easy to say, but I want you to be human. You know, give people time. If you've got an hour of time set aside with somebody, recognize they're probably coming out of another Zoom call and are going to go into yet a third Zoom call right after yours. Give them a few minutes at the front end and at the back end to go to the restroom, to get a glass of water, to refill their coffee, to get up and stretch their legs. It's funny, people get a half hour time or, a, or 15 minutes worth of time or an hour's worth of time, and they end up using the whole thing to pitch, 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 or to interrogate the person they're talking to. And there's no time there to sit back and take a breath and be able to think through what the person's saying. So if we can give them extra time, you know, end early, talk about less stuff. I can guarantee a customer will never be upset getting a few minutes of their day back. Uh, here, here. I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I was in a job back in August of last year and it was just back-to-back meetings on a Monday and a, a Wednesday, you know, and it was crazy. You couldn't get anything done, you know, you couldn't focus on anything. And especially if somebody really important wanted to talk to you, yeah, I, I've got time, but I can only give you 15 minutes. Like That's not great to build a relationship. So you have to think about planning that a little bit better. What else can people do uh, around Zoom and team meetings? Other things they can do is be very selective in what you're going to share in the meeting. So if you've got 17 features that, you know, in your, let's let's say you're pitching a product and you've got 17 features, pick the top two or three, even if you have an hour, pick the top two or three based on what you know about this audience member and what you know about their needs, pick the top two or three things and focus on those so that you can have enough of a robust discussion and Q&A and dialogue back and forth around the things that are really gonna drive their decisions. Again, most people go in and say, well, if I've got 15 minutes, that means I've got about 30 seconds per, per feature to race through as fast as I humanly can. And if I take a few you know, breaths here and there, I might miss one or two. It kills decision-making. Again, the research is clear. The more options you give, the less likely it is someone's going to make a decision. So if they don't make the decision for the top two or three things, they're not going to make it for the, for number 14. 
But from your experience, is there a vehicle that you can use or a technique that you can use or a certain way you approach things that can hook people's interest? In my business, I teach people a, a process or I walk them through a process. And having a process really helps not just to know, you know, what are some of the key ingredients we have to add? Things like that perspective in an interesting way. Uh, things like customer or audience-centric benefits, you know, approaching, approaching value from their point of view, not from our point of view, and giving the right sort of evidence and proof to back it up. Not a ton of facts and data, but the right relevant impactful pieces. So I can teach a process to know what to put into it and what order to put it in. That, that has an impact as well, but it also helps inform us what to keep out. And that's really where a lot of people struggle is the editing side and knowing, okay, what, you know, for this meeting, for this audience, for the outcome I'm trying to achieve at the end of this particular meeting, what am I, what do I need to, to, to share? And if it doesn't help serve that, you keep it out of the conversation. That's a really good perspective that you take there because that applies to so many different things in life. It's like looking at a, a magazine, for instance, and looking at the white space relative to what's written on the magazine with photographs. In fact, what's more important is the space around what you're trying to convey. And it's, again, it's like a, a book conveying a description of something. You can do it in very, very succinct terms and let somebody's mind create the rest of it. So it's, it's a great adage. I, I totally agree with you. Is there any practical programs or apps on the market that are great trying to help to build up that relationship with people, make it very personal when you're sending a message, for instance. So I wonder if there's anything you could sort of key in on there that you, you know, you think would be useful for people. I use a tool called Loom. Effectively, what it lets you do is record your, your desktop or an application, puts a little thumbnail of you as the speaker up if you want. And I find it's a great tool to use when I'm emailing. So if I, you know, if I'm teaching a class and someone sends me an exercise rather than go through the exercise and write up detailed notes in an email and send it back, which is time consuming for me, it's hard for the person I'm working with to digest. Instead, I just go through their exercises on Loom. I mark things up with my stylus on the screen as I'm talking. I record it and I send it to them. Or in, in sales conversations, if I'm sending a proposal, for example, yes, I will send the formal proposal, but I'll also put a 30-second tailored video in there as well, highlighting the key points based on the conversation I had with the person who requested it. You know, essentially, 30-second summary, that's very easy for them to digest. And I send that with the proposal. And I love that because it's almost a memorandum of understanding, but verbally and visually, isn't it? Uh, because they can take so long, they can take an hour to just type up for a kind of 15 or 20 minute meeting. But if you can just get on like we are today, do a video call, literally just record that and send that. It's, yeah. it's very personal, isn't it? It's personal and it's conversational, right? It's not because we, we tend to write very formally. We tend to write as if we're writing a paper, but when you when you record yourself, we talk in, in natural language and it comes across conversationally, which again, cements kind of that peer-to-peer -peer feeling, right? We're, we're two thought leaders talking about something and it, it just, it so it's easier to consume and it has more resonance. We alluded earlier on to the next stage in the process. We've talked about establishing, you know, number one, to get your foot in the door. Number two is establishing rapport with your client and understanding what their needs and requirements are and then tailoring whatever you can to maybe two or three points that are very important. Yep. What's the next stage then? If we think about the buying the buying process or the buyer's journey or a decision process, if it's, if it's not a sale sale, 
there are multiple steps to go to where we're ultimately trying to head. You know, it's funny, I'll, I'll talk to, to, to people that I'm coaching and I'll ask them, okay, you're going to a meeting with this client. What's your outcome? What's your goal for this? And they'll say, well, I want them to buy the product. Okay, so where are you in that process right now? Well, this is our first meeting. I'm like, well, do you expect them to actually agree to a purchase and sign a PO at the end of this meeting? Well, absolutely not. We've got to do this and this, and we, you know, we have to. I've got to have a meeting with procurement, then a meeting with the with the director of technology, and then we need to do a proof of concept and maybe a demo or a demo, then a proof of concept, and then we're going to need to get the the RFP to come out and respond to that, or be invited to the RFP, and then respond to that, and then come back and pitch, you know, our our solution, and then we'll be able to to get them to agree. So anyway, maybe a maybe a three step process, maybe a twelve step process. And the, the challenge there is that people tend to focus on what the end result is. I want the sale. And they put all the content in there to support the sale. The problem is, is that the next step may be to have a meeting with procurement. And if you're putting in all the data necessary for a decision maker to buy the product, and you're just trying to get someone to get the next meeting with procurement, you're going to overwhelm your audience. If you can limit your content to saying, hey, here's point one, point two, point three. can I have, can we set up the meeting with procurement? You're much more likely to get to that next step. And so, and I know that's not exactly what you're asking here, but for me, before we, we do this presentation or have this conversation, we need to know what's that logical next step to make and then focus and tailor the message, not just to the audience, but to that outcome as well. Then when we get to that meeting, the, after that may be to do a data exchange or to do uh, to have the meeting with the director of technology. Then we need to tailor the message for procurement to help set up the meeting with the director of technology. And then if it doesn't support that outcome, then we don't talk about it. So the message is always changing. The problem is, is that people tend to try to load everything for every potential audience to get to the ultimate outcome and it just bogs everything down. You're, you're right. And also, I think that approach that you take is is seeing, you know, it takes many parts to make up a company or an organization, and you have to be very cognizant of, of all those different parts. Yeah. And I used to call it, I used to call it, you're, you're being a, a military man, we'll talk about this in a minute, is I used to call it a pincer movement. You know, you 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 do the, the top end, you get the guys that are the kind of logical thinkers, the people that are designing things, maybe. But you've also got to get the guys that, that maintain these things and, and put them together and have to replace things. So I call it the pincer movement. You, you approach it from both ends, but you have to have a different pitch or a different way of talking to those people. But the conclusion ultimately is the same. You know, you want to be on board either with the product, the course that you run or whatever you're trying to procure, you know? Right. To your point, if I'm talking to an engineer or to a maintenance person, I'm probably going to talk about ease of maintenance, being able to have less downtime not talking about financials, not talking about contracting terms. Whereas if I'm talking to procurement, yeah, I can talk about ease of maintenance. Procurement doesn't care. It's about price. They care about schedule. They care about availability. Maybe they care about quality. But I would argue that procurement doesn't generally doesn't even care about total cost of ownership. They care about price, right? So that means I have to tailor the message to them. So it's always going to be changing depending on who I'm talking to. Do you find uh, culture makes a big difference? Because you're a man of the world. I, I know you travel to different locations right around the world before COVID. Do you find uh, culturally it makes a big difference on that approach, so the, the, the initial approach that we talked about, and then the follow-up? So yes, and here's where I can get myself into trouble because I'll, I'll paint with some, some broad stereotypical uh, paintbrushes. 
But generally the, the approach that I teach and that I use works across cultures, but there are some tweaks. So for example, Russians I find are very difficult to pitch to because culturally they tend to have a need to show they're the smartest person in the room. And so if they can't get me on technical merits of my discussion, they'll find something else to criticize me on in front of others. And it's just, it's, it, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's just a different way of, you, know, you have to understand that they have different, some different drivers and some different behaviors that we need to be prepared to deal with. When dealing with Brits or dealing with South Asians, there is a much higher concern about hierarchy and power distance. And so typically what I recommend in a presentation, not in a meeting, but in a presentation is don't introduce yourself at the beginning. Give some perspective, create some interest, show what's in it for the audience first before you talk about yourself, because frankly, they don't care about you. However, you try to do that in India or you try to do that in the UK and you'll get shut down in a few seconds because you're being rude by not introducing who you are and why you are relevant to speak. What are your relationships? What is your title? You know, and, and you know, East Asia as well is, is similar in that vein, right? So we have to be cognizant that we may need to change the order of things we talk about a little bit different in other cultures because they have different needs. And that makes complete sense. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. It's funny. I have a couple of good friends from the Eastern Bloc countries or the previous Eastern Bloc countries, and it is a completely different pitch to them. It's very much you have to prove it. You know, you really have to go beyond the proof. And, uh, you know, they are, I wouldn't say necessarily a negative approach, but they're much more critical about yeah. things, you know, uh, they want to see it work and work some more, you know, and that's, that was an interesting experience. That's interesting because, you know, a rule of thumb I like to use is don't answer questions the audience doesn't have yet. And so lots of times we tend to go in again with too much detail and too much information. If the audience wants it, they're going to ask for it. That being said, if you're talking to a, a very technical audience or you're talking to folks from the Eastern Bloc, they will likely pepper you with a lot of testing questions. And by testing, I mean testing your credibility and knowledge. You know, what theoretical model did you use behind this? What calculation did you use? What software did you use to, to calculate this? You know, and they'll ask and ask and ask. So, to me, you know, just tactically what that means is I need to set aside more time for discussion, which means that I have less content packed in. Yeah, and that makes complete sense. And would it be something as well, because it's incremental uh, when you do these type of presentations, you, you're not going to get everything all in on the first one, but you can always decant and have a separate side meeting. Or in, it's a great opportunity to have another another touch point, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's the things that help build trust in relationships. You're halfway through listening to On and On The Trap with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Kevin Palo. Next, I wanted to ask Kevin a little bit more about his background in the military and also in the oil industry and how that might have formulated his approach to business in building up deliberate consulting. So I'm a, I'm a typical American mutt, so I've got genealogy from all over the place. Grew up on the West Coast of the U.S., so born in, in California, grew up in Seattle. Went to college at the University of Washington, did not do well because I just I wasn't mature enough. I wasn't ready and ended up dropping out and going into the Army. And I spent nine years in the Army, and that forced me to grow up and get some more discipline and, and learn the, the value of a lot of hard work. And uh, eventually, the Army took us up to Alaska. 
and we realized that we liked Alaska more than I liked the Army. So I finished my degree while I was in the Army, and then I went to graduate school afterwards um, at the University of Alaska Anchorage. Go Seawolves! Usually I get crickets after that because no one's ever heard of school. That's okay. And I ended up going into the oil industry. As much as we loved Alaska, career, you know, career opportunities are, are fairly limited in a, in a small market like that. And in oil and gas, all roads lead to Houston at some point. So that brought us to Houston. And I, you know, we figured we'd be in, in Texas for a year or two. And now 17 years later, we're still here. Isn't that incredible? I want to dial back a little bit, though. You skipped over a few things, and I wanted I to did. just dive in a little bit. So what did mom and dad do? Were they inspirational? Did you have inspirational people that kind of helped you on your journey through life? Was there somebody that was previously in the military? Tell me a little bit about the, the family background. So my dad was a career teacher, an educator, wanted me to become a teacher as well. And I said, there's no way I will ever be a teacher. And now I'm a professional trainer. So it's funny how, how life works out. My mom worked in the medical field. She spent her life, you know, working with patients, with doctors, back office, front office. My grandfather was in the military. So he was in the army. He was in the second world war. And then uh, two of my uncles served as well. One in the Navy, one in the air force. They had an influence on me. I decided I wanted to, to go in the army because I wanted to learn about leadership. So went into the army. I was in the infantry for nine years. Well, actually, technically infantry for six years and then adjutant general for my final three. So adjutant general, for those who don't know, that means paper pusher administrative guy. So <laughs> that's what I did. Fair enough. And, you know, there's certain aspects of the military I really, really enjoyed. So the work ethic amongst, amongst your peers is fantastic. The sense of community and greater purpose was huge. What a lot of people don't realize about the military, you know, they, they perceive it as drones being, you know, told, you know, when to, when to get up, when to eat, when to shower, when to do this, when to do that. And yes, there is a large degree of that, but the military also very much values problem solving and decentralizing decisions. So one of the favorite, you know, the really neat things in the military is something called commander's intent. So when you're on a mission, part of the mission order is the commander's intent, which talks about two levels above you. What, what's the big picture that we're trying to achieve here? And then it's up for the individual platoons and squ you know, squads and individuals to internalize that bigger picture so that if an opportunity presents itself, they can make the decision on what should I do at this point with the with the understanding of what their bigger picture is for the overall mission, which really decentralizes a lot of decision making. You don't have to go through a large process and get approvals to do things if it's in support of that of that greater mission. So it's that's something that that I still like thinking about when it comes to communication as well. If we can help convey the bigger picture to help people make better decisions on their own, that means that decisions are faster, we're more agile, we can get things done more effectively and more efficiently. And that's a really interesting point you hit on because um, it's about that critical thinking, isn't it? In the situation that you're in, um, it's not the hesitation, it's making a decision based on the information you've got. It's about practice, practice, practice in the military yeah. as well, isn't it? Scenarios so that you become natural at what you do. How did that set you up for the degree that you did? What did you, what was your degree, by the way, that you did? A uh, business. Okay, got you. So when I originally started started college before the army, I was a history major, and I realized I would never get a job as a history major. Uh, <laughs> and so when I start then when I restarted going to school, and then when I went to graduate school, um, business had a great interest for me. 
something that's always very difficult for people in the military, and I can speak from experience of seeing my father coming out of the military and also my brothers, is the adjustment to civilian life. We call it Civvy Street in the UK. How difficult is that for people from a, a military background to really get their gears going and to actually get some traction when they come into civilian life? It was difficult for me. And, you know, and I had the luxury of serving in a peacetime army. I got out before 9-11 happened, whereas many of my peers and certainly anyone who served in the last 20 years, completely different scenario with multiple combat deployments where even when you're not deployed, you're either recovering from or preparing to go back. And so the, the tempo of operations for those guys has just been unreal and the stress level unreal. And, but even, even me coming out of a peacetime army, it was a difficult transition for me where you oftentimes in the military give up your own freedoms or your own comfort, um, certainly a lot of your own time, well, not own time, but a lot of your time to get the job done. And then you go to a civilian workplace and people don't have the same level of dedication. And you know, the, you know, hearing things like, well, that's not my job. Well, the military didn't have the luxury of saying that's not my job, but you get into the civilian sector and there's a lot of people with that attitude, not my problem. And the problem is that some critical things don't belong to anybody. And so as an organization, how do you get shit done when, when it doesn't belong to anybody? And that's really where leadership and influence come in again. And that's where this communication method really came in handy for me is that I started communicating this way after I took a class because I was in a role where, so this is in the oil and gas industry. I was in a role where I had to change the way people worked. I wanted them to collaborate online. This is before, these were the dark days before Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, I had to get people to, to collaborate digitally and I had zero authority to do it. So I had to influence. And so I took this sales communication course, but I applied it for internal audiences and I became seen as a guy who could get people excited about ideas, who could motivate people to change. And that's what led eventually to what I'm doing today is that it completely opened up different paths. And I got put in, consistently put into new roles that had never existed before. And they needed someone who could come in and not only figure out how to make it work, but get people aligned and on board and engaged with the process. So again, I'm going to go back to something you said earlier on. We're all salespeople. We're all effectively on stage, aren't we? Yes. So again, give us some practical advice. If you're fairly new to sales, or maybe you've been in sales for a little while, but you're not successful, what are some of the couple of things that you do to how to influence people, you know, and how to make friends? The old adage was that how to make friends and influence people, yes. which is kind yep. of Dale Carnegie. From your experience of being in a practical situation with the military, then doing the theory and then applying it, you know, in the oil and gas industry, what's been some of your successful go-tos when it comes to positioning yourself? So part of it is not, I won't say don't take yourself seriously. Yes, I do want you to take yourself seriously, but it's not about you. So it's really about the person you're communicating with. What is it that drives them? What are the things that they care about? And the solutions they're looking for, typically, they don't even care about your solution. They worry about, they care about the outcome. They buy a product or a solution or idea, or they change process, or they change the way they're doing things because they're trying to accomplish something. And if, if, if nothing else, just put on your audience's hat and try to look at the world through their eyes, and then approach your communications and the activities you're doing that support that. 
And again, it's it's easy to get stuck in our own world and think about features and functions and pricing and all that stuff. But you know, if we can approach it from their point of view, that just instantly makes you more likable. Also, if you can be more interesting when you talk to them, you know, you come in and you give them that different perspective, that helps them make better decisions because they're thinking in different ways. So that's critically important. Being cognizant of time, you know, be aware that people are busy and constantly peppering them with, with information or showing up late for meetings. You know, that's, you know, people just don't have the time to make that up and you'll, you'll lose opportunities. If you say you're going to do something, you got to do it, right? Again, it's amazing how many people don't do that. Yeah, so there's a lot of little things that we can do, but you know, think of each little thing like that that you do. You know, none of that really takes training. That just takes having awareness, right? But think of it like like you're you're steering a boat. You know, each little thing might be a one degree difference, but over time, that can that can lead to a pretty pretty big curve. Yeah, and, and that's a great analogy. And you hit on something very very important there. It's about follow up as well. You know, we might do that front end so well, and we've done it to the book and. You've got people on board and they're, they're, you know, we're cooking with gas, you know, but if you can't conclude it, if you can't conclude it with a follow-up and to close down, why make all the effort? So do you find that there's some things in your experience that are great for bringing people back into the corral and then getting a decision made? So a few things. So one is the old rule of thumb for sales guys is you don't get what you don't ask for. So you actually have to ask for it, ask them to do something. And so, you know, have a good you know, call to action. Now, there's different ways to close it, right? You can do the assumptive close. Well, when should I send over the purchase order? And you generally come across looking like an ass when you do that. But for some people, it works. I like, you know, asking open-ended questions. What do you think? What are your worries? What did you like about that? Questions they can't answer with a yes or no. And that leads into a discussion. And then once you get into a discussion, it's harder to manage from, you know, from an from your point of view, but now the audience is becoming a part of the solution. And now they're becoming invested in it because they're talking about things. And it's a gold mine for you. You know, again, now here's here's more discovery that you're doing. You're you're learning more about them, what their needs are, you know, even the what, what's their technical language. There's a lot there that we can pick out from that. Uh, another closing technique is then to say, you know, what do you want to do next? And then that puts the responsibility on them to answer. And if they say, well, you know, I need to think about this, then you can come back with, okay, that's great. When should we talk next? Versus just the constant stream of emails that most people end up sending that don't lead to anything. So easy to ignore. Well, that's the thing today, isn't it? The vast majority of people now have to have such a filter because they're getting so much by email. And I loved what you said earlier on about Loom and making that personal video that just says to them, you know, I'm here. This is what I've, I've done for you. Give me a call. I've just circled what's important. Let's have a conversation. I'm available either Thursday or Friday of next week, the order alternative close. I always love that. I, I wanted to hit something just before we finish, because I remember, and we didn't really talk about it at Lunch Club, but I, I know this interests you. You've got quite an interesting innovation with AR and VR. Is that correct? And in, in terms of it really piques your interest. What's the background story to that? Well, so I've thought about this over the years. Um, you know, I watch my my twenty year old play video games, and she, you know, she's just she's so engaged. It's what she wants to do. Is spending you know her free time doing that. You know, and and I think about when it comes to to communications. If we can't be there in person, is there something better than Zoom? Yeah. Can we do something in virtual reality or augmented reality uh, that can make it 
feel more natural. So how do we have more natural conversations? How can we start getting back some of that body language? And so I'm, I'm fascinated. Can we do events that leverage that sort of technology without it just being gimmicky or one more thing that we have to learn as a user to go out and do, particularly if it's a one-time event set up by a vendor, good God, the last thing I want to do is go and, and spend 30 minutes, you know, downloading the software, worrying about my IT security guys, you know, having a connection fit, uh, building an avatar, figuring out the controls, and then go into this thing that, you know, people, you know, can do goofy things like have a rabbit head or be dancing in the audience. Now, how, how is that going to help me as a, as a business professional learn or, or network, you know, in, in this environment. So I think there's danger there in coming across as gimmicky and wasting people's time. But if we can make it more of an interaction, a more of a firsthand experience. So, you know, that's a, we're a big believer that the closer we can get to a firsthand experience, the more of an impact it's going to have. And so I would, you know, I'm exploring some, some platforms now to look at, you know, maybe doing a workshop there as a, as a proof of concept to see how does it work? Does it enable people to collaborate easier than they do with a breakout room? I love it. I love it. It's, it appeals to me because I'm that kind of techie geeky guy as well. Um, but I do key into what you're saying is that there's so many apps and so many things that we have to learn. It's becoming almost that we've got overload in learning at the moment, you know, because of this compressed timeline with COVID and, you know, all having to get on Zoom and all these different visual uh, apps. You know, even things as, as, as simple as, you know, using Zoom instead of Teams or vice versa. They are so similar that, you know, they function effectively the same, but there's a switching cost every time you go to a, the one that you're not used to. The controls are a little bit different. The functionality is just a little bit different. And that wears people out because it's just one more thing, one more uncertainty, one more thing they have to learn, one more software package that that they don't like using that they have to use. And that wears on people. Yeah, and you don't realize about the fatigue. You know, the mental fatigue is, is phenomenal, actually, because, you know, I know that my workload and my meeting load went up exponentially when I then start to do everything remotely. And it, there's no reason why it should have, because we can still have the conversation on the phone. We can still do emails, but why did it go up exponentially? And is there a need for that? You know, is there a need to go down that that kind of rabbit hole, so to speak? Well, listen, I'm going to I'm going to wish the best of luck on that. And we'll, we'll, we'll watch very carefully for the the Palo app that's coming out. Don't hold your breath, but yeah, I'm looking to do that, do that proof of concept. I'm I'm excited just to learn to see what the reaction is. Well, well even to, to bring it to something like Lunch Club and have that conversation is a great place and a great forum to do it, you know, which would be good. Well, listen, before we go, I want to really figure out how, um, number one, how you can help people out there, first of all, with the business. So just recap what key things you're keying in as a business, how we can get a hold of you uh, by email and do you have a website? Yeah, so, you know, if you need help with a critical message, or if your help team needs help with their process for putting together persuasive messages, let me know, because that's what I do. I, I help people get to their point and be more persuasive every time they communicate. So to get a hold of me, uh, Kevin at deliberateconsulting.com or go to my website, which is www.deliberateconsulting.com or you know, at a minimum, connect with me on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn's great. I found that's been a great platform for me in the last sort of couple of years. So yeah, absolutely. So 
I want to ask you, what's the future for you in terms of where you're going next in this environment that we're in? Have you got any plans? Have you looked at that crystal ball and said, right, the next two year plan, or do you not think ahead as much as that at the moment? No, in, in fact, I'm thinking more about that than ever. I'm trying to make a decision on one, how I want to do that. I'm not going to get into detail because I'm not sure which direction I'm going to go yet. As much as I love face-to-face training, it's hard for individuals and companies to carve out time, carve out enough time. My belief is that with COVID, it's going to very much change the landscape for consulting and training. And I think we're going to, you know, even after COVID is no longer a big concern, my guess is a lot of executives are going to be asking, why in the hell would I spend money on travel and have non-productive time for my employees to go to training when Zoom is good enough? Yes, absolutely. Problem is, is that training over Zoom, even if it's great, generally isn't as sticky. And they're not, you know, the individuals aren't getting the networking. It's not the same as being in a room working with others. And so I think the quality of the training goes down a bit. In some cases, goes down drastically, depending on how well it's delivered. But I think it's going to be an interesting discussion around ROI of travel for doing events. But how do you build culture? How do you build deep skill? How do you build team skill? without having people in a room. Can it be done? Sure, it can be done. But I think it's harder. And it takes longer. That's the thing. It's it's a longer process. Okay, one final question before we go. And I ask everybody this. If you were speaking to Kevin, leaving school, right, what advice would you give him going back to when you were 16, 17, 18? It's a great question. You'll figure it out. We always do, don't we? We always do. We always do it. You know, we, we make huge plans and life has a way of taking us in directions that we could have never anticipated. And uh, yeah, if I could give my my 16-year-old self advice would be, you'll figure it out. Absolutely. And it's interesting. I think on the back of that is uh, be fearless and have an open mind. I suppose that goes hand in hand with that, eh? Well, it, there's no growth without doing something new. And to do something new... You have to make the choice to face your fears and get on with it. And that's it. Great advice. Well, Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for coming back on again. I know, like I said, we met with Lunch Club and it was great. And you inspired me with what you said. And and what was wonderful about it is you shared some of that really great knowledge that you've got. And I really appreciated that very much. And I thought for my audience, I wanted them to get the benefit of some of that knowledge as well. So thank you again for coming on board. Thanks, David. Bye. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Kevin Palo from Deliberate Consulting, helping your business be deliberate about its messaging and innovation. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America. Thank you.